Welcome to the season 2 of the India Energy R podcast. The India Energy R podcast explores the most pressing hurdles and promising opportunities of India's energy transition through an in-depth discussion on policies, financial markets, social movements and science. The podcast is hosted by energy transition researcher and author Dr. Sandeep Pai and senior energy and climate journalist Shreya Jai. The show is produced by multimedia journalist Tejas Dayananda Sagar. India's wind energy sector has never had a breezy year for close to a decade now. An early mover in the green energy space, wind energy players relied on tax benefits for initial growth. But as incentives and subsidies faded, so did the fortunes. Recently, in another major policy shift, the bidding regime for the wind sector would undergo significant changes. To talk about the past, present and future of the wind energy sector, we spoke with Mr. D.V. Giri. He is the Secretary General of Indian Wind Turbine Manufacturers Association, the industry lobby body for wind turbine makers. Giri has held senior executive positions in several sectors, including foreign wind energy majors. He has been associated with Indian Wind Turbine Manufacturers Association since its inception. Welcome to the India Energy R Mr Giri thank you so much for joining us here today i must say this is in some ways our first full fledged episode dedicated to the wind energy sector of the country and who better than you can guide us through the past present and future of this very important sector in the green energy transition of the country thank you jay you kind and generous but i hope i'll come somewhere near your expectation with your friends and i don't let you down I know you won't. So let's quickly first start with you. I know that you have a very interesting persona and a career, but I would want our listeners also to know about you. So can you describe your journey? Where are you from? What did you study? Where all did you work and how did the wind energy sector happen to you? And then subsequently the association as well, which you have been part of and spearheading for quite some time. Thank you. My name is Giri, of course, and as you can see with my grey hair, I'm a senior citizen, and I come from Madhya Pradesh, this southern India, and God has been very kind. I'm born in a family of thought uh, leaders, lawyers, and national leaders and freedom fighters. That's the background I have, and I'm the only son of my parents. With a result, I have been a backbencher all my life in school and college, and. Uh, I did my schooling from Chennai and uh, post-graduation in economics from Loyola College, Chennai. And thereafter, I went on to do my post-graduation in management from XLRI, Jamshedpur. And then onwards, once I passed out of Jamshedpur, I worked for eight years in uh, Atasti, which is a normal thing to do for any student passing out of Jamshedpur, XLRI. And I left Jamshedpur because I found it very closeted and then was not able to grow. So I worked for 19 years with a group called the RPG Group, which is RPG Goenka Group. I have been involved in various industries of there for over 19 years in the field of fiberglass, 
I've been with uh, fertilizer, I've been with thyroid and aquaculture. So that adds up to over 27 years. And I'm happy that in the last 26 years, I'm involved with uh, wind energy. I think it's kind of funny that when I was wanting to leave aquaculture and when I told my group HR that I want to leave, I was working in aquaculture, which was just a one-year stopgap. I had two jobs on hand. One was to continue with aquaculture. The other was to go and be in London with a company in Lagos to look after logistics for an oil company ferrying and looking after logistics for ferrying uh, uh, boats uh, for the uh, men-to-work off-field. And then from nowhere, a junior of mine whom I had never met in my life, so management school, he calls me up and he says, Hey, Kiki, there is a job of the CEO of a wind energy company. Would you like to join? I know nothing about wind, so I told this guy, Sorry, and I won't be interested. He said, Listen, let me send you a bunch of papers. Have a look at them, read them. And if they call me for an interview, I didn't, and then let's see what happens. So I read a few parts of the thing being what's a navit vessel and the power, what's a blade and the generator, and so on. What was I prepared? As I told you, know, being a backbencher, I tried to mug up whatever I can. And then I got interviewed by some local consultant who then put me under this guys in Denmark. And at that time, you know, it was not very popular to have all these VC calls and whatnot. So these, those guys, after they speak to the consultant, uh, took the risk of calling me over to, to Billund in uh, Denmark. So I, off there, I went and met with these guys. I don't know, I can't still figure out as to what made them get interested in me. And I got hired. So I joined a Danish joint venture company into wind in Chennai with a small 250 kilowatt turbine. And when I joined this company, it was a joint venture, we had six turbines in all of 250 kilowatt. Five of them owned by the company itself and one to a customer. That means we had just one customer. And I worked with them for about 15 years. And in that 15 years, we were able to power almost all the wind states. We have today, I think, over 1.2 gigawatts of turbines, or 50 kilowatt turbines working in all the eight states. We then graduated to a 750 kilowatt turbine. I was lucky and I was responsible for introducing Siemens Gamesa into the country. We have over 100 turbines of Siemens Gamesa working. And just about the time I was getting to leave because the Danish company, the partners moved out and the Indian company was too small to uh, take on higher risks. And that I, at that time, I was almost ready to uh, retire. And I must say, having joined a very small company, I found that association was a great platform for me to figure myself in this large group of these big boards. So I took an interest to become a secretary of the association and later become the chairman of the association. And then I became a founder, director of Global Energy Council with Mr. Steve Sawyer. And then that gave me a global opportunity to have meetings and I was the, the marksman to give the Indian story to various forums, whether it was in the uh, US or was it in Ozum in Germany or was it in Denmark or is it in the UK. And then that gave me the great global explorer. So having my mark as a guy uh, who fit on policy and reflection, and when I was wanting to hack up my boots to retire from commercial life, my fellow members of the manufacturing community, they came and said, listen, we have a small association and why don't you have that as the Secretary General of the Association. So there you are. I'm happy to say at the age of 76, I'm still batting as a non-retiring batsman. And uh, 
I was in Chennai starting uh, in 2013. I was in Chennai for about five years. And I'm happy to say that with the present administration, the government of India, it looks as if it was better for us to be closer home. And Shreya also gave me the invitation to say, what did you come today? So I moved to Delhi in 2018 and I'm here. So what I think I really want to say is I'm in this sector because I think I'm committed to this. I think it's a sense of passion and commitment. And I don't think the flame is dying out. And we have seen the ups and downs of the uh, industry. And uh, God willing, so far as I contribute and my members feel that I am contributing, I would stay. And then even after I retire, I think I would follow the Ebbing story because that story has not really begun. And I would like to see the end where the government's plan of net zero by 2070 is really a reality and not a myth. So I could be in my talk, uh, be a little sarcastic or a little uh, debatist, but one is whether quite a few storms, and I think we will be on. That's great. I will just ask a follow up on the personal story and then we can move on to the topic. I was just wondering, like you have played so many different roles, right? You have been in the wind production side, like installation side of things. You've been, you know, in Tata's and the steel industry, I'm assuming, and you have been in different industries. What do you think was the most significant, like game-changing experience? I'm sure each of these experiences taught you different things, but what would you suggest was like one of the most, from a learning point of view, a great experience, especially when you bet on such a small company. I think it was a smaller company, as you said, to go on and join them. So among all these experiences, which was the most richest and the most, from a learning point of view, the best experience, if you have one? More than win and take the risk on joining a very small company and then making it really grow. And I'm happy that in the wind sector itself, the guys who work with me join me at a 3,000 rupees as a laborer. Today, are in major MNC companies, be it GE or Investors or Gamesa, working not only in India, but also outside India. And I think, you know, their salaries may be about, let's say, if they join me at 50,000 rupees a year, today they are earning something like about 30, 40 lakh. I think I have played a large role in growth of people, and I think I'm rather proud of it. But if you ask me a specific, like an interview, what I think was my cherished moment is when I was working for uh, RPG. Having worked in tire company, I was working in a company making tire corp, which is the nylon that goes inside the tire. So we had our own company called CA Tires, and I was given the marketing portfolio to sell to all the tire companies. So when I went to Evmara, which is the largest tire company at that time, one of the things they asked me was, Mr. Giri, you are about property team. When I buy from you, how do we know that you're going to give us a quality? And how are you going to ensure that you don't let us down on the delivery? Because if you are dependent on you, and you don't deliver, about my production will come to a stop. And therefore, no way you cannot sell us tire court. And give us one reason why we should buy from you. I told Evmara, you are the leader in the industry. And if you want to continue your leadership position, you have to use my tire. Otherwise, you will lose that. Thus, I am telling you and giving you an advice when without charging you a consultancy. That's number one. Number two, I said, doubly, you are testified to say that you are scared that we will let you down. We will not compromise our quality. But if you are afraid of delivery, without checking my management, I would stock at your place two months of supply as per the reading pattern you require. And I would have it deposited with you. 
we will keep that as a rolling stock. And then you decide whether you want to get a new business. And before you do that, come to our factory in Volier, in Malanpur. Normally, they would not let a competitor. And without checking with my management, I said, I'll take the risk. I'll take you guys and let me know whether you want me to buy your tickets. So when I called up my director, he said, Mr. Giri, I'm sure you're going to lose your job. That didn't happen. These guys came. And when they came inside, they made only one remark. Sigiri coming inside the Doria plant in Malatpur. Once we step inside, we're not so sure whether we are in India or whether we are in Japan. That is the kind of remark they made. And believe you me, Sandy, we got two months talk, much against breaking all protocols of our commercial requirements, and we got it delivered. A credit limit which was given to them for 60 days. They were so happy, they reduced it to 30 days. And out of nine players, the tire court three, though being a competitor, I was the largest supplier to a competitor. And I think that's one thing which I would possibly, I don't have actual unfortunate. If somebody were to listen to the story, I think this would be a repeated story which would come all the way and every time that it comes up. That's really fascinating. Thank you for sharing. I mean, yeah, wow. I think that's the kind of partnership we need in like clean energy as well, right? Going forward, that can be an inspiration for that sector. Let's get started on the topic of India's wind energy sector. So let's just start with basics, right? First principles. Let's start with the sector. Just lay out a big picture point of view of how the past two decades have been for the wind sector. It has seen its share of highs and lows and mostly on the back of sudden policy changes, if I may. Can you summarize the growth of this sector and some of the challenges that it has faced since its inception till 2023 or till the beginning of 2023? I think you are again giving me, you're tempting me to go down memory lane. I would say, you know, very frankly, wind turbines or wind energy, I think it's an engineering model. I think perhaps this is the only industry which combines civil, electrical, mechanical, and electronics. And an engineering model which works in typical complex terrain with very little human interface. I think this is something that is fantastic. And then if you go into the history of wind turbines, I would say we owe all our thanks, number one, to that time, which is now MNRE, which was called the Department of Non-Conventional Energy Sources, which was known as DNAs, which became MNAs, which became later MNRE. Their cooperation with the Danish aid, which is called the Danida, I think they are the ones who taught us what wind turbine is. They set up demonstration plants, a small 55 kilowatt turbine in Tamil Nadu. And then they handpicked engineers from the utility under the ECM program, took them to Denmark and taught them how to do wind measurement, how to erect a turbine, how to operate a turbine, how to maintain a turbine. I think this holding of Denita is something which can be written in gold and custom stone. I think that's the most beautiful thing that happened. And then I would also say, the torchbearers of the human service of government of Tamil Nadu, or known as the Tamil Nadu Electricity Board, now known as the Tanjitko, proactive policies to say, fine, you are installing the turbine, you could use the generated power for your own use. And fortunately, government of India at that time came up to say, one can use power for their own captive use. And then, of course, you are aware that there was accelerated depreciation of 100%, which later became 80 and then became finally 40 and now of course it's zero. There was also AT and IA benefit where there was a tax holiday, they could take a three-year 
tax holiday with the first 10 years of uh, operation. And we found that there are many power-intensive companies like textiles and cement. We invested in wind turbines to future-proof their power costs. I would say in a very basic manner, if a person were to use their deferred tax to be paid to the government as their upfront money, and they would, that was about 30%, and get the balance of the government, and then they put up the turbine, and within about seven years, if they are able to recover their investment, their principal, and the loan, let's say after about seven or 10 years, if you take the life of the turbine of about 25 years, after 10 years, other than maintenance, insurance, and some little labor, the power was for uh, jam. So I would say that if a person, after 10 years, the cost of power at that any point of time was not more than a rupee per unit. If they did not have a turbine, they would be paying something like about 5 rupees a unit for power. And here I think I would just give one example. You have in the south, there's a company called Dalmia Cements, or a cement-making company. Out of three plants, they have one plant which works purely out of wind park for their own capitals. And while we are talking about power intensive units, there are a number of textile processing units. People are having 10,000 spindles, 12,000 spindles. They found again that they were making profits, and profit is not a bad word, and they were able to get the profits by investing in winter marks. Plus, as a South Indian and as a conservative public as we are, most of the uh, captains of the industry or the owners of the uh, small race, they put up the turbine and gifted it to the dog. The power that was generated was used by them. But then the turbine was the daughter's name after the deposition was taken up. So that after she gets married, she has an asset to herself. But should something go wrong, that she's financially secure. That she will sell the asset, use the asset, she can do what she wants. So there was a lot of sentimental attachment to this particular turbine. Now, it's very interesting that today we are at 40 gigawatts as on date, 40, 41 gigawatts. But the first 20 gigawatts came out of this section of investors, the large textile and cement guys, and thousands of small investors put one turbine, one 250 gigawatt turbine. Today, the Seki code is for a 250 megawatts. Here we are talking about one guy buying a 20 kilowatt turbine and all he was interested was to ensure that the turbine was installed before the 31st of March so that he can avail his income tax benefit. So these guys are responsible for the first 20 gigawatts that was built in the country. And apart from those guys who are using the turbines, their own capital used, there are also guys who are selling turbines, generate power to the discounts. It was a, a legal process through the state regulatory commissions who had a public hearing. They took on a spreadsheet, they worked out what is the capital cost, what's the wine, what's the, the interest costs, what's the PNF, what should be the post-tax IRR, and they arrived at a tariff. And the tariff had a control period, and that was binding of the discoms. And the discoms were happy to buy. But of course, there were a few laggards who did not pay the generators on time, that's a different story, and it's a very painful story which has happened both in Andhra Pradesh as well as in uh, Tamil Nadu. But the fact of the matter is, we had 20 gigawatts built by them. This is a story that ran from '94, and I'm happy to say, again, the lineup of the, uh, the saga of Intermine. My director in the Yorvita company with the Danish guys put up a Micron machine in 1989, and today we are in 2023. 
is 34 years old it's still chugging away power without a change in the blade the generator or the gearbox so i would say going back bit 80s the engineering was so perfected the scandinavian country we really have a in engineering mouth now in 2003 we found that larger companies from abroad bringing in funds from private equity as well as from pension funds and others they were wanting to compete in india and do business of course they didn't have an appetite for accelerated position because they don't have business in india but then they still found that borrowing interest rate abroad and the kind of business they would get out of india and india had a beautiful policy of an automatic route by which investment was easy and they could do 100% investment and repatriation of dividends was also equally easy and disinvestment was equally easy so you had a host of players who came in and i'm happy to say that they had a growth like that guys who were sitting in india were enjoying the accelerated position guys were bringing in large sums of money were not getting anything and i'm happy that my good friend mr subramanian former secretary mnri he worked with a bunch of boys to say that if a person who is getting accelerated depreciation is able to get so much of money why not we give something for the guy doesn't require accelerated and let's make both of them mutually exclusive so they formed something called a generation based incentive they said if you generate you will get 50 paise per unit up to a ceiling limit of 1 crore and you will pick up that money not less than 4 years because then you will touch years and not more than 10 years by which time you would have certainly generated and your thereby would qualify for the judges so the ipps came larger in number because the gbi picked it and they were more interested to send it to the uh, discounts but of course they were running the risk of non payment from the discounts this story ran very well right up to 2017 in 2017 government of india i do not know the wisdom they had in their mind desired to go for a uh, central procurement to do away with state procurement they would go for central procurement and then they decided it not only be central procurement by a feed-in tariff which will be determined by the central regulatory commission but then they decided they would go for a e-reverse auction e-reverse auction is not something new it has been practiced in a number of countries outside it was tried even in china unfortunately i think the mistake the government did was in the year 2016-17 since that was the last year of gbi and accelerated depreciation we had a record inflation of 5.4 gigawatts not knowing that things will go bad we as oems you know who have to plan at least 18 months ahead for all over supply chain we planned on doing something like about 8 gigawatts and suddenly the tap on fid closes and then the universe auction starts without any chance i think this what exactly happened and then the number of auctions that came was so small it was a dog eat dog story the ipps where money is part of the country they had to you know use it and then i'm here going to say something which is not so good investors from retail and power intensive users the ipps of financial investors they have no love for power they wanted to see if their excel sheet showed them a post tax irr of x they were willing to invest and then 
if they did not get it sputum 23 gigawatts have it valued and then exit so when the number of auctions were small and accrustal bit started with the e-reverse auction the tariffs became so so unviable and then the last five years between 2017 and 2022 we have been adding 1.7 gigawatts per hour and here i think perhaps i forgot to mention that in india we have a capacity to manufacture 15 gigawatts per hour and i am proud to say that the cost of turbine manufactured in the country with a robust supply chain even before atmanirbhar bharata and make in india slogan came in with a new garment we had localized so much with engineering skills in the country that even today as documented both by jivek as well as by bloomberg cost of turbine is the lowest cost in the world we are even lower than china we have such robust supply chain and we are able to meet international quality standards by which we are able to export to different geographies of the world with that kind of a thing of 15 gigawatts and chasing the 1.7 gigawatts per annum governments has set up a target of 500 gigawatts by 2030 and we are at 40 gigawatts in the next 8 years if we have to reach the target we need to do something like about 1.5 gigawatts per annum as against 1.7 gigawatts and the beautiful thing of wind is that we are a low water industry we install turbines on a corporate basis and we are absolutely non polluting and agriculture can coexist with wind energy with these plus points i would say wind energy as we stand today we will come to other subjects as we go along with your presence here on aid out we are really at crossroads so that's the position we are in the last 20 years what we should have done and where we are now up till 2017 it was smooth sailing and after 2017 things have been bad some corrections are being done and we will go ahead with the next question if i may you know ask you further on this 2017 shock that happened to the industry if i look at from a different perspective you know this sector was running on tax incentives for so long it also became a sector where people invested because it gave them tax breaks uh, you know wind sector at one point in its history was making headlines just because celebrities were investing in it and that was just because of tax incentives do you think that the sector was dependent on tax incentives tax breaks you know the celebrity culture of investing in it to get quick returns was the sector too comfortable that it could not adjust to this very little change of going to reverse bidding you know by the time reverse bidding was introduced in the sector the tariffs were at a position which were pretty close to you know the fit tariffs and the reverse bidding tariffs there was not much of a gap so do you think that you know the policy might have come as a shock immediately suddenly but was the sector not mature enough to absorb this kind of shock number 1 deliberates investing in wind turbines is a whole wash unfortunately ashur and i are amitabh bachan or sachin tendulkar they made headlines if you take the first 20 gigawatts that was installed 70% is were captured safe to discount was the second option safe to discount came in where ipps came in. otherwise it was primarily using for captive views and i said for future proving of power 
That's number one. Tax incentive, even after it was dropped from 100% to 80% to 40%, it was going on well. And government had the scheme of group capital where you invest in the turbine instead of just selling it to the discount. You sell it to capital users. Or you have the you had the sales tax holiday in Maharashtra where uh, one saw huge investment in Maharashtra. Yes, as a starter, AD was the final. But thereafter, I think the capital use continued. And in 2017, what came as the shock was that there was no transition. China, when they moved from FIT to to uh, was option, the transition was with uh, something like about 50, 60 gigawatts was in charge. I think there's nothing wrong in the reverse auction. The e-reverse auction was wrong with an uppercut. Why do you set an uppercut? How do you draw a line? Like for instance, how do you determine power costs? Whether it is a, a thermal or a hydro or a nuclear or whatever, there is a determination of costs. And as you know, Shreya, there is an APPC cost. If there is an APPC cost at 3 rupees 45 paisa, and if we are asking for a, a let's say a fair return of 3 rupees, why should they get a rash? Why should RE be cheap? It's a private sector which is investing into the sector. They are bringing in the money and you throw it into a rose auction where, as I said, you know, the auctions were so small. Now, let's go away from this and give you a small little numbers. Seki 1 to Seki 30. The total number of, sorry, total amount megawatts filled out is 19,000 megawatts, out of which 15,000 megawatts have been awarded. How much has been commissioned about by gigawatts? They set up the rule of having the auction without any precondition. So far as you had a net worth, you could get into an auction. We said have a reverse auction, but they have a qualifying criteria. Apart from network, that they should have the land, they should have a stage to play that's on the grid, they should have a tie up with the turbine manufacturer because they should microsite to say which turbine and work where. None of them are there. That means that the bidder to secure an order went on a Dutch auction, secured the order, and thereafter started looking at where you would put the turbine, which state you would put it up, and the best states were Gujarat as well as in uh, Tamil Nadu. Now, when everybody ran to Gujarat, Gujarat government turned up and said, listen, power is a concurrent subject, the land is a state subject. Why should Gujarat give land? Power that is produced in Gujarat and transported outside Gujarat, what does Gujarat government get out of it? Therefore, we are not giving the land. What I'm saying is the entire system of the auction without consultation with the states, Without consultation as to the standard operating practices outside the country, they just jumped in and they said solar, which is at 20 rupees, they bought it down to 2 rupees. The Madhya Pradesh Electricity Regulatory Commission, because the PLF is very poor there, it went up to 5 rupees 91 paisa. And then minister, of course, I will not mention the honorable minister's name, said no, we will stop all procurement from FIT and we will go only with e-reverse option and we will ensure that we will put an upper cap and the upper cap killed. E-reverse option should have certain principles by which you are. I think that was not handled well. And we also showed to them that gross bidding, a two-envelope bidding is as good and it is not something new. 
Crossbreeding is available for defense as well as for infrastructure. Yes, defense, which is a, such a sensitive subject, when you are able to have crossbreeding for them, why not have crossbreeding for wind? It is not a reality. And the worst is, this comes, I am happy to go on record. They are perpetually broke. They are broke and they are inappreciated. Why are they broke? Because they are dictated by their political bosses. They have to give free power. If they have to give free power, they have to steal from somebody else. So what did they do? They got the power. They didn't pay the generators. So I would say we got down the power, let's say, from 3 rupees 46 paisa in Tamil Nadu down to about 2 rupees 44 paisa. It was supplied. Five years have passed. Whatever be the quantum of power that has been ejected either by wind or by solar. Wind is at 40, solar is at 60. Whatever be the levels of PPF, they're signed. But let us take even the last five years. Has that tariff gone down to the consumer in any sector, whether it is domestic, residential, commercial, industrial, has gone down by even one naya paisa, point one paisa. But for all the reasons that you have mentioned, be it, you know, discoms giving free power, hence they want cheaper sources of electricity. And obviously there are inherent flaws with the L1 model across sectors, not just energy across infra as well. But how else would have cost of wind come down is my question here. Because this happened at the time when solar was rising in the country. You know, tariffs were going down immensely. Capacity addition was happening. First, how would have wind competed with solar? Second, if the sector was not so much dependent on tax incentives and was much ready for change, why did this sudden financial trouble happen with the leading companies in the sector? You know, company by company just went out of business. Some of them packed their business and left the country. What was the reason for that? As I again said, if you want to have a meaningful business in the country, you forget the model of procurement, whether it is FIT or whether it is both bidding, you call it what you want. Let me put the wind regime into three different buckets. You take the high wind regime of Tamil Nadu and Gujarat. Medium wind of Andhra Pradesh, Maharashtra and Karnataka. I will not count Telangana. And then you take Rajasthan and Madhya Pradesh as the lawyer. If you put them in three different buckets, without getting into an Excel sheet, and getting into the details, I can tell you today, if the government wants to achieve what they want to achieve, at 3 rupees for Tamil Nadu and Gujarat, 3 rupees 10 paise for the second of Andhra, Maharashtra, Karnataka, and 3.25 for Epi and Rajasthan, you will see their numbers coming. Now, why did Seki fail in implementation of projects? The main thing is, SECI is totally dependent only on the discounts. As a trading license licensee, it's like a mall. Power has got no color. They should sell power to any entity. They sought only to discount. And if the discount did not want it, what they call as the power sale agreement, the PPA was not planned. Today, you find the same IPPs who have quoted 2 rupees 44 paises and 2 rupees 60 paises are surrendering the profits. Let's take the case of solar. In solar, one particular charge would be at, let's say, 240. The second charge came down to 2 rupees 30 paises. The buying state says, no, the one at 240, I do not want. I'll buy only at 230. So the 240 charge lies in cold storage. The point is, the cost of power under APPC 
is three rupees forty six paises or forty seven paises, and there are state APPC tracks. If power from renewable energy sources, wind or solar, is offered lower than APPC, I'm still not able to understand why people should think that wind and solar are cheap. Let's take one example of Gearbox. We have four companies in India, large MNCs, who can make twelve gigawatts of gearboxes and they're being exported. Out of their 12 gigawatts of production, hardly 0.5 gigawatt is supplied to the domestic requirement. The balance is exported. But our requirement is small. The fact of the matter is, for the 11 gigawatts, castings and forgings from the gearbox is imported from China. Government says, though, I'm going to put anti dumping duty on castings because it's coming from China. Your cost of gearboxes will go up. Who engineered the anti dumping duty? LNT. One of the largest companies in India, which sold it to Bracton. And Bracton, what did they do? They folded up business in India and went away. So, all I'm saying is that when you want to set up a gear or a casting factory, unless you are able to give a production link incentive to, we are not saying that you need to give production link incentive to the only manufacturers of devices. The backbone of this industry is components of black. And being out of the 4,000 or components that go into a turbine, into this global engineering marvel, more than 2,500 to 3,000 components come from MSMEs. Today, the government talks about startups. Why can't you give something to the MSME sector for them to encourage themselves to indigenize more products? Here, it's, there is no money from the government. Government introduced a coal cess and they call it as the National Clean Energy Fund. They started with 100 rupees per ton on imported and indigenous coal. Today it is up to 400 rupees per ton. The last figure I had when Mr. Chidambaram was the finance minister was 67,000 crores. The last figure I heard with our present finance minister was like in 35,000 crores. This money is to be spent on clean energy. But where is the money gone? The money has gone for deficit financing of the military. That money, if it was properly utilized, I can tell you something, it's very important to hear this. A project in Karnataka, under the Senki bid which Shreya was saying, is not happening. The machine is available, the land is available, the grid, both in Kopal and Gadag, right from 2020 onwards, where the bidding took place. Even today, it has not been addressed. The IPP has placed the order on the OEM. Since the grid is not open, they are not lifting the turbines through the OEMs. We were 19 OEMs, came down to 14. And today, operational is 5. Many of them are exported. Our exports last year and this year has gone up by 87%. Our capability, while our turbine higher size is about 3.3 in commercial scale, the gearboxes which we are exporting out of the country is a 7 megawatt size. That's the kind of engineering expertise we have in the country. So I would say, you give us a level playing field to work on, where we make money, we will do it. But when you are working with financial investors who are looking at an Excel sheet, I would say, biggest problem is there is a mismatch on the turbine prices which we want to sell between 7 to 8 crores per megawatt and the requirement of the IPG with this Excel sheet Quoting at 2 rupees 50 paises and 2 rupees 60 paises, around 5.5 to 6, there is a mismatch. As they say in Hindi, you can't buy gold for the price of silver. Therefore, 
many other people have poured out of it. And IPPs go and complain, think that turbines are not available. We're here, import them. Let me take your point, and this is very fascinating, and ask you like a connected question in terms of like, you did a really good analysis of, you know, what not went wrong, but like what happened in the past. But let's also reflect a bit on where do we go from here. So, you know, recently, I, you know, we, we are hearing that government is now trying to give away, you know, get rid of the reverse auction process and trying to bring what you said, the single stage to envelope process. Do you think this will be a game changer for the industry? It has got some caveats. Number one, you have to change the bidding guidelines. The bidding guidelines will have to have criteria of bidders apart from net worth, as I mentioned, to have qualifying criteria of the land they have, the grid they have, and the turbine which they have thought of. I think these three, I think this is an absolute must. Number two, when the envelope gross bidding takes place, government has now thought of L1 plus 2%. L1 plus 2% will not work. I think what we need to require is a pocket filling mechanism or increase the band N1 plus 2% to N1 plus 10%. Give me a very small example of N1 plus 2%. In Project 13 of Seki, the bid was for 100 megawatts. A government utility or a government outfit quoted 2 rupees 90 paises and N1 plus 2% came up to 2 rupees 95 paises, which qualified three guys and for a total of 600 megawatts. The balance 600 megawatts shelled. If 600 megawatts are shelled, you take it at a cost of 7.5 crores per megawatt. As OEMs, we have lost an opportunity of 4,500 crores. So you have a target ahead of you. You have a target and you are looking at price band far below the APPC price. So I think government has got to look at that you want to have no pollution. You want to come to sustainability. You want to come to carbon neutrality. You want to get to net zero. You want to get to 500 gigawatts. And then if you are going to be in jumper market haggling between one paise and two paise, it will not happen. I think growth bidding is definitely a game changer, but I think they need to look at qualifying bidding guidelines. And I think either they go on a bucket filling method or they Increase the bandwidth of N1 to 5% or 7%, which I'm sure Seki will be able to run it out. I think that's one as far as the pros being is concerned. While we still feel FIT is the right thing to do, but I think it's a couple of moons away. I'm sure before I retire, FIT will come in. But I'm sure pros bidding, if it is put up properly, and IWGMA, I would be trying to do wrong to say we were pretty responsible to get that. Let's run one or two auctions. They are now talking about 8 gigawatts per annum spread across five states. And Sandeep and Shreya, if you permit me, I'm happy that apart from close BB, they are also now looking at the proof fold tariff, which means that the discounts will have a fixed tariff. The bidding will be done at the supply level, whereas as, as well as the same level is concerned, it will be a, a determined full tariff, which will be open to all the states across India and which will be delivered by a CRC. And uh, I hope in the first quarter of 2000 calendar year, we would have the first auction of 2000 megawatts covering four or five states. 
I'd like to, you know, ask, which can presumably be our last question and looks at the future. This particular change in regime, abolition of reverse option and close bidding comes at a very interesting time because the industry and the government both are exploring options in the offshore wind sector. And second, as we covered in our journey, it has already been two decades for the sector. And there must be a lot of projects which are now looking at repowering. So that is another challenge that the sector faces. So if you can like summarize all these things and tell us what the future looks like, what does 2030 looks like for the wind right. energy sector? Let me start with, again, with a little basics. If we are today at 40 gigawatts, and by 2030, we want to go to 140 gigawatts, it's not going to happen. Let's look at the numbers that can happen. Between now and 2030, eight years, we have put up eight gigawatts per year. We'll come to 64 gigawatts. But then, maturity of projects will take 18 to 24 months. Your eight gigawatts will actually kick in by 2025. So you have five effective years. In five effective years, let me be liberal to say that out of 8 gigawatts, we will do 6 gigawatts per annum, which is fantastic. I will get an increment. So, you will do about 30 gigawatts between now and 2030. The backlog of taking 1 to 30, possibly, you will get another 7 or 8 gigawatts. So, that will come to something like about 37. I will make it even that as 40. So, we are coming to about 80 gigawatts. If you were to touch a 100 mark, we have to open up bilateral trade of path. Government has given ISTS waiver till 2025 and we are asking the government match the ISTS waiver to your period of 2030 and allow bilateral trade to take place using the ISTS waiver. Unfortunately, government has now restricted the banking cycle to every state. Annual banking, which was there, it's now been reduced to one month. If my simple arithmetic is your generating months is for five months in a year, your buyer wants power the entire year. How do you generate in five months and not carry forward and supply? You're putting the cart before the horse. So I believe that if you have annual banking and if the discounts say that they are making a loss by giving annual banking, the generators are willing to compensate that loss and can still make a profit. So I would think bilateral trade has to appeal. Number one. Number two, as you correctly said, repowering. Repowering, if you do at least six gigawatts can be done in the next four to five years, which would add another one gig. Your bilateral trade can give you about two gigawatts per annum. Your repowering can give you about one gigawatt per annum. In this entire, whether it is close between Universe auction, whatever, whatever. The threshold for auction is 15 megawatts. The small guy who put up the first 20 gigawatts has got no path to play. He can't even bid for 5 uh, megawatts. So my point is, you give a special dispensation to the MSME guy who puts up a turbine. Give him, let's say, 10 paisa, 20 paisa over the bidded tariff. You will have 1 to 1.5 gigawatts per annum from the FSME industries because they are committed. They are the sons of the soil. They are the ones who are here. They are investing. They are generating. They are providing employment in their core business. They are also employing people in their bin power station. I think this is an absolute must. We have fought for MSME and unfortunately, the big boys are getting their ticket 
but the MSME guys are getting the call. If an MSME is playing their part on the supply side of making components, of making this beautiful turbine, and they want power for themselves, and they want the investment part, and you deny them saying that you can't give it because you're an OBC, I think that's not fair. If these three things are done, I would say we would be 100 plus by 2003. The last question which you asked, Shreya, on offshore. We do not know offshore. It's not walking on the road. It's swimming in the waters. Let's look at the journey of offshore. Four years back, they put up an expression of interest for one gigawatt. 32 companies outside India have state. What happened to the UI? Nothing. The potential of offshore in India is about 100 gigawatts between Gujarat and Tamil Nadu. Today, they are wanting to auction one gigawatt without a viability gas line. The cost of power generation through offshore would be in the region of about 10 to 12 rupees a unit. Who will buy it? Gujarat government has said, I will buy it at 3 rupees 45. The Gujarat has now gone to court. Tamil Nadu is saying the same thing. Allow me to buy it at 4 rupees. Balance, you have to take care of yourself. Without viability gap funding, how is offshore ever going to deal? For solar, even today there are PPAs at 20 rupees a unit. And you do not want to have a viability gap funding for a project which is yet to take off. I would say my recipe for the government, like the Danita who put up demonstration projects, let NIVE, the National Institute of Wind Energy, or any other NTPC or ONGs, they are operations for national interests. And ONGC, which knows how to drill oil out of water, they are the guys who should use their platforms to put up turbines. What's wrong if they make a fire crores loss in a year? Nothing is wrong. The important thing is we do not have learning lessons. Do we have infrastructure to make components in the country? Do we have batteries? Do we know how to lay undersea cables? We don't. What are the issues that will come? Like the ROW issues on land. Let's say tomorrow, 100 fishermen uh, rebel. So I would think it will happen, but government has got to take the lead in demonstrating offshore. So I would think for this conversation, let's keep offshore 10 years from now, but we need to move on. Unless we take baby steps now, it could never happen. Really, I learned so much. I cannot tell you. Thank you and look forward to being in touch. Thank you. It was fascinating conversing with you. Thank you, Sandeep and Shreya. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the India Energy R. Subscribe to this channel to never miss an update. To drop us a feedback, visit our website or write to us at theindiaenergyr at gmail.com. We are on Twitter. You can follow at T-I-E-H underscore podcast and get in touch with the two hosts at Shreya underscore J and at Sandeep Pai with double I.